Section 47 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 67 The Literature of the Reign, Second Survey, Part 1. The later period which we have now to survey is more rich in scientific literature than that former period which we assume to close with the Crimean War. In practical science, we have already shown the advance made during the reign of Queen Victoria has been greater in many ways than the advance made from the beginning of civilization to that time. Sir Robert Peel travelled from Rome to London to assume office as Prime Minister, exactly as Constantine travelled from York to Rome to become Emperor each traveller had all that sails and horses could do for him and no more a few years later peel might have reached london from rome in some forty-eight hours something of the same kind may be said for economical political and what is now called social science the whole of that system of legislative reform which is founded on a recognition of the principles of humanity may be said to belong to our own times our penal systems have undergone a thorough reform. More than once it seemed as if the reform were going too far, and as if the tenderness to criminals were likely to prove an encouragement to crime. But although there have been for this reason little outbursts of reaction every now and then, the growth of the principle of humanity has been steady, and the principle has taken firm and fixed root in our system of penal legislation flogging in the army and navy may be said to be now wholly abolished the senseless and barbarous system of imprisonment for debt is abandoned there is no more transportation of convicts care is taken of the lives and the health of women and children in all manner of employments schools are managed on systems of wise gentleness do the boys hall would be an impossible picture even for caricature in these later years. We are perhaps at the beginning of a movement of legislation which is about to try to the very utmost that right of state interference with individual action which at one time it was the object of most of our legislators to reduce to its very narrowest proportions. It may be that this straining of the right of the majority over the minority is destined to bring about in due course its reaction but we do not think that the survival of the fittest the doctrine on which our forefathers acted more or less consciously in the education of children and the treatment of criminals will ever again within any time to which speculation can safely reach be adopted as a principle of our legislation much of the healthier and more humane spirit prevailing in our social systems in our criminal laws in the management of our schools in the care of the state for the working classes for women and for children is undoubtedly due to the spread of that sound and practical scientific teaching which began to make it known everywhere that the recognition of the laws of health will always be found in the end to be a recognition of the laws of morality. But though the philosophy of these later days has proved itself thus essentially practical, it is to be observed 
that the great scientific controversy of the time is distinctly and purely speculative the darwinian theory as it is commonly we will not say vulgarly called may be described as one of the most remarkable facts in the history of its time dr charles r darwin grandson of the author of the botanic garden and zoonomia was born in eighteen o nine he showed at an early age great capacity as a naturalist he accompanied as naturalist the expedition of his majesty's ship beagle for the survey of south america and the circumnavigation of the globe this expedition occupied him nearly five years and he returned to england in eighteen thirty six he published several studies in geology and in fossil species and seemed to have made his mark as a naturalist of distinction and nothing more charles knight's english cyclopedia published in eighteen fifty five twenty years after the return of dr darwin from his great voyage speaks in high terms of his contributions to the sciences he studied and adds mr darwin is still in the prime of life and may therefore be expected to contribute largely to the extension of the sciences he has so successfully cultivated if mr darwin had died soon after that time the world would never have suspected that it had lost anything more than a highly promising naturalist in eighteen fifty nine appeared the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of the favoured races in the struggle of life the book had hardly been published when it was found that a great crisis had been reached in the history of science and of thought the publication of darwin's origin of species regarded as a mere historical fact is of at least as much importance to the world as Kant's publication of his theory of historical development in these pages we are considering darwin's theory and his work merely as historical facts we are dealing with them as we might deal with the fall of a dynasty or the birth of a new state the controversy which broke out when the origin of species was published has been going on ever since without the slightest sign of diminishing ardour it spread almost through all society it was heard from the pulpit and from the platform it raged in the scientific and unscientific magazines it was trumpeted in the newspapers it made one of the stocked subjects of talk in the dining-room and the smoking-room it tittered over the tea-table mr darwin's central idea was that the various species of plants and animals instead of being each specially created and immutable are continually undergoing modification and change through a process of adaptation by virtue of which such varieties of the species as are in any way better fitted for the rough work of the struggle for existence are enabled to survive and multiply at the expense of the others mr darwin considers this principle with indeed some other and less important causes capable of explaining the manner in which all existing types may have descended from one or a very few low forms of life all animals beasts birds reptiles insects have descended he contends from a very limited number of progenitors and he holds that analogy points to the belief that all animals and plants whatever have descended from one common prototype 
the idea that man gradually developed from some very low prototype was of course not dr darwin's especially nor belonging even to dr darwin's time it was an idea that had been floating about the world almost at all times it had become somewhat fashionable in england not long before dr darwin published his origin of species it was led up to in the vestiges of creation a book that once caused much stir in scientific and religious circles a strong-minded lady in lord beaconsfield's tancred bewilders and saddens the young hero by gravely informing him that we once were fishes and shall probably in the end be crows but darwin's book if we take it as resting for its central point of doctrine upon that principle of the survival of the fittest was the first great systematized attempt to give the theory a solid place among the scientific opinions of the world it was worked out with the most minute and elaborate care and with an inexhaustible patience qualities which we do not expect to find in the originators of new and startling theories dr darwin's work was fiercely assailed and passionately championed it was not the scientific principle which inflamed so much commotion it was the supposed bearing of the doctrines on revealed religion injustice was done to the calm examination of darwin's theory on both sides of the controversy many who really had not yet given themselves time even to consider its arguments cried out in admiration of the book merely because they assumed that it was destined to deal a blow to the faith in revealed religion on the other side many of the believers in revealed religion were much too easily alarmed and too sensitive many of them did not pause to ask themselves whether if every article of the doctrine were proved to be scientifically true it would affect in the slightest degree the basis of their religious faith to this writer it seems clear that dr darwin's theory might be accepted by the most orthodox believer without the firmness of his faith molting a feather the theory is one altogether as to the process of growth and construction in the universe and whether accurate or inaccurate does not seem in any wise to touch the question which is concerned with the sources of all life movement and being however that may be it is certain that the book made an era not only in science but in scientific controversy and not merely in scientific controversy but in controversy expanding into all circles and amongst all intelligences the scholar and the fribble the divine and the schoolgirl still talk and argue and wrangle over darwin and the origin of species professor huxley is one of the most distinguished and thoroughgoing supporters of mr darwin's principle professor huxley advocates in his own words the hypothesis which supposes that species living at any time must be the result of a gradual modification of pre-existing species he maintains that to suppose each species of plant or animal to have been formed and placed on the globe at long intervals by a distinct act of creative power is an assumption as unsupported by tradition or revelation as it is opposed to the general analogy of nature professor huxley would have been a distinguished scientific man if he had never taken any part in the darwin controversy he would have been a distinguished scientific man even if he had not been as he is 
a great thinker and writer. In the arena of public controversy, he has long been a familiar and formidable figure. He came into the field at first almost unknown, like the disinherited knight in Scott's romance, and while the good-natured spectators were urging him to turn the blunt end of the lance against the shield of the least formidable opponent, he dashed with splendid recklessness and with spear-point forward against the buckler of Richard Owen himself, then the most renowned of England's living naturalists. Professor Huxley has a happy gift of shrewd sense and sarcasm combined. Few men can expose a sophism so effectively in a single sentence of exhaustive satire. It would be wrong to regard him merely as a scientific man. He is a literary man as well. What he writes would be worth reading for its form and its expression alone, were it of no scientific authority. He has a fascinating style and a happy way of pressing into the service of strictly scientific exposition some illustration caught from literature and art, even from popular and light literature. Mr. Huxley seemed from the first to understand that a scientific school can never become really powerful while it is content with the ear of strictly scientific men. He cultivated, therefore, sedulously and successfully, the literary art of expression. His style as a lecturer has a special charm. It is free from all effort at rhetorical eloquence, but it has all the eloquence which is born of the union of deep thought with simple expression and luminous diction. There is not much of the poetic about Mr. Huxley's style, but the occasional vividness of his illustrations suggests the existence of some of the higher imaginative qualities. There was something like a gleam of the poetic in the half-melancholy, half-humorous introduction of Balzac's famous Peau de Chagrin into the well-known protoplasm lecture. But, as a rule, Mr. Huxley treads only the firm earth, and deliberately, perhaps scornfully, rejects any aspirings after the clouds. End of section 47